This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn, and today I'm honored to speak with Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardoza in his office in Bayit Began. He's the author of 13 books and founder and dean of the David Cardoza Academy in Jerusalem. He's originally from Amsterdam, and he studied for 12 years in Haredi Yeshivot, after which he developed his own innovative approach to understanding Judaism. Today, Rabbi Cardoza is on the front lines of the discussion about halacha's place in the future of Judaism and how to integrate halacha into a genuinely religious worldview. His new book, Jewish Law as Rebellion, was just released. It's available on Amazon, as well as in bookstores throughout the world. Rabbi Cardoza, I'm honored to speak with you today, and thank you very much for joining me today. With all pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, your book, Jewish Law as Rebellion, is tantalizingly subtitled, A Plea for Religious Authenticity and halachic courage. This obviously indicates that you see a real problem in the Orthodox world. Can you tell us briefly, what problem are you trying to address? I try to address several issues which are related to each other. I believe uh, that we are lately misreading the Jewish tradition. I see the Jewish tradition, first of all, as a protest movement against the complacency against taking things for granted, and on top of that, not being able anymore to uh, make sure that it responds to the requirements of the times in which we live, specifically in relationship to the state of Israel, which has radically changed the situation of the Jews, first of all in Israel, but also outside Israel. So what problem specifically do you see as manifesting through those issues? I believe that, first of all, halakha has become an issue uh, which is no longer doing what it needs to do in the form of getting us closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Uh, as a religious experience, I see halakha as a way how to make us aware about the amazement of this world, the wonder of this world, and constantly making sure that we don't take anything for granted in our lives, not as Jews and not as human beings. And I believe what has happened is that the halakha became an issue of just having to observe it without understanding anymore the music behind it, what it really wants to achieve because it has a goal. And if we miss the goal, then we miss the whole point of why we are living this observant kind of life. And this is related to the way how we have to deal with halakha and what needs to change in halakha to be able to bring this concept of amazement, of being aware of the wonders of this world and wonders of the Jewish people back into our hearts. So when you say the goal of halakha and this radical amazement, is, is that what you would define as the goal of what halakha is supposed to achieve, or is it larger than that? It may be larger than that, but it's definitely that, and I don't believe that that is something which today we at all respond to, not in our school system where we just teach our children that they have to do this and they have to do this and this is forbidden and that is not permitted and so on, instead of telling them why, making sure that they understand the music behind it, the ideology behind it, very, very important. It's no longer discussed or very little discussed. And therefore, we are missing out on the main point of what this Jewish tradition and halakha tries to achieve. Well, what do you mean by we? You use the word we a lot. We are failing in this. We, Who's I we? We are the, uh, let's say, mainstream, but even beyond that, Orthodox Judaism, and obviously also conservative Judaism, and also uh, reform. We are a very large, let's say, religious 
community which no longer understands the purpose of why we are there and what we need to achieve. In your opinion, Rabbi Cardoza, is this a new direction that you're trying to create? Or are you trying to return Orthodox Judaism or Judaism in general to something which once existed and was lost? In other words, have the Jewish people lost their way and you're trying to bring us back to the authentic halachic process? Or are you trying to create a new direction within an existing system? Both because they're related to each other. No doubt I want to go back because I believe if you go back to the days of the Talmud, you very much see still this concept of religious experience and of feeling close to God, Dvekut Hashem, whatever name you want to give it. But it also requires, if we want to achieve that today, that we have to think about new means by which we will we'll achieve that sort of thing. Can you give an example of what that would be? Uh, well, it can be, first of all, I think we should have to, we have to rethink about our prayer world, in the sense that uh, today too many people are going, including myself, to shul, to synagogue, without understanding more what we are actually doing over there and not being in the right state of mind, in a state of heart to achieve that. We go through the motions, but we no longer understand what the original uh, plan behind all this was. And that may require changes in our prayers. We have to be very careful how to do that. And number two, I believe that uh, altogether we must make sure that we are working around in this world, as I said before, not taking anything whatsoever for granted. We have grown up too much, too much to taking things for granted and being aware there is nothing special anymore about this world. This has a lot to do with secularization of this world, which has brought this about. And I think religion is a protest against taking things for granted. Religion throughout the uh, Ages was used to comfort the troubled. I believe, and I'm not the first one to say this, that now it should be used to trouble the comfortable. So you indicate possible changes, obviously doing it very carefully, and that leads to a different question. You talk about halacha as deliberate chaos. Yeah. You are against over-codification or perhaps codification altogether. You're very Correct. clear about that. Correct. And you say that you want, I'm going to quote, to allow God to enter via what appears to be chaos and chance. So you also say that this cannot become an anything-goes situation where there are no rules and regulations. So how do you draw the line exactly between chaos and structure? You have to be extremely flexible while at the same time keeping in mind and focusing on the ultimate goal, the religious experience. But that changes over the times and that changes in uh, different situations. And that is what we have lost, I think, in many, many ways. And therefore, especially within the state of Israel, where we are confronted with a completely different situation. Uh, Let me put it in a different way. I believe that the halacha, and I'm not the first one to say this, has become defensive in the sense that for the last 2,000 years that we have been living in this galut, in uh, exile, we had to build very high walls, tall walls around us to make sure that we won't get too much influence by the non-Jewish world around us, which very often was also a world of animosity and a lot of anti-Semitism. So what, what happened in Halakha was that we constantly focused on that. How do we survive in Galut as Jews, which is a minority of a minority, and that we have been doing for the last 2,000 years. Therefore, Jewish law was also developed that way. That was its ultimate 
concern. But now that we are back in Israel and we are an independent people, with all the problems which we have, we are still independent. And that means to say that now we can somehow bring halacha back to its original purpose. In other words, I would say like this, it became a defensive And on top of that, it got into a waiting mode. It basically was waiting. When can we go back to the real thing again? And now we have the opportunity to do that while we are back in Israel because we have the freedom to do that. Halakha has to be aggressive, just like the Israeli army sometimes has to be aggressive. You can't be only defensive. You have sometimes to think about how are you moving forward and not just building more walls to uh, secure yourself. And that is what we are at this moment missing within the halachic world, with exceptions here and there. So let me really eat on to a question which I wanted to ask you about something you write in your book about this idea of defensiveness or perhaps a holding pattern. You offer a very moving and frankly disturbing story in a chapter entitled Needed Redemptive Halacha. Right. You describe an encounter with someone who's greatly hurt by the application of the laws of Yain Nesach, the idea that a non-Jew cannot touch wine or else it cannot be had by a Jew. And without getting into all, all of the halachic details and the background that you offer, I'm going to quote something that you say. You say, it is for this reason that the law of Yain Nesach is counterproductive. Its objective has already been achieved. It fulfilled its purpose and has become obsolete. In fact, by continuing to observe this law, we deny that Judaism has had a powerful influence on our world. That is the reason why there is no point in continuing to observe a law that forbids non-Jews to touch our wine. That's the end of the quote, which is obviously provocative in a very serious way, as I'm sure you intended it to be. Now, there are many laws that, because of changing circumstances, are not necessarily applicable. We know this. And usually, that happens within the halachic process. Chazal or later authorities find ways that it does not apply nowadays. But it sounds like you're unilaterally asking to get away with the law without necessarily using the classic halachic tools to do so. Is this so or did I misunderstand? No, I think that is not right. If you look into some of the authorities, the halachic authorities, starting with the Meiri many hundreds of years ago, who already said that the Gentile which is discussed within the Talmud, is no longer the Gentile of today because most Gentiles, at least in the West, are people who believe in God. They're monotheists. They have uh, They're not moral uh, standards. They are not uh, people who are uh, bowing down in front of idols. And therefore, he was of the opinion that many of these laws, he didn't speak about the Yai case, but in general, he said, we have to be careful in the way how we use these criteria in the Talmud and apply them on today's situation because that's no longer the kind of Gentile we have been speaking about for all the years. So I just move this one one step forward and say, if that's true, as the Meiri says, then it should also apply to the case of Yain Nesech, of the case of wine, because it is the same principle. The principle is that the reason why we did not want the non-Jew to touch our wine is because we wanted to stay as far as possible away from getting at all involved with them and uh, wanting to make it very clear to our children that uh, there are limits. And therefore, wine, which was at that time the most important drink, you don't drink it together with the non-Jew, and we even go as far as uh, not wanting them to touch it. I remember that when in 1946, when I was born in Amsterdam, it was absolutely forbidden in Holland, a cultural thing, 
of buying anything German or even getting close to it because of the hate which the Dutch had towards the Germans. And Le Havre deal, the same thing is true here in our case. There was a certain strong objection against the non-Jewish world because all, all of its terrible things it had done. But now the situation is different. So I'm just arguing why doing and holding on to this particular law, while in fact the effect which it should have had, we have already achieved. We already have made enough clear that we are different from the non-Jewish world and whether or not they touch our wine is not going to make any difference. And for the same reason, which is the second reason why Yai and Nesseg was forbidden, is because of mixed marriage. Mixed marriages are not going to be stopped today by the very fact that we don't drink the wine which was touched by a non-Jew. So I'll ask a provocative question. Sure. In your opinion, is this an orthodox approach or something with a new name? I think it is orthodox, but obviously also people will say it is not orthodox. But I haven't yet heard any good reason why my observations are not within the orthodox framework. By the way, the Rama, the Rabbi Moshe Isolis, many hundreds of years ago, already said when he was aware of the fact that Jews used to drink non-Jewish wine made by non-Jews, he tried very hard to justify that on the very basis of what I'm arguing here. There's a movement in the United States called Open Orthodoxy, right. which is headed by Shivat Chovavei Torah, although admittedly Rabbi Asher Lopatin on this very podcast several months ago told me that he wants to get away from that term because he said, we're not open orthodox, we're simply modern orthodox. So right. that's a different issue. Nevertheless, most people in the orthodox world would look at them as a specific segment within the orthodox world, trying to push the envelope, shall we say, in a certain Correct. way. Correct. Do you feel that what you're doing is akin to what they're doing or something different? It is somehow similar but also different because I think the difference between me and them is, and I greatly appreciate them, is the fact that I do not want to secularize in any way our relationship with religion, which I think they do not enough emphasize the religious experience, the awareness of living in the presence of God, which I think needs to be more emphasized than at this moment open orthodoxy is doing. And I would say like this, it may be that open orthodoxy sometimes goes too far, but you can only know about this when you try it and you have to take a risk. And sometimes the risk goes wrong and sometimes the risk is going right. And that is what I do in my way as well. But perhaps I do it a little bit of a from a different perspective than they do, but I greatly admire them for what they're trying to do. What do you feel about the conservative movement in terms of their relationship with halacha? I know that in your book you criticize their approach specifically of having halacha committees. Right. Do you think that they're trying to do something, uh, not getting into their motivations, of course, but what they're trying to do has a positive value or really is it outside the pale? I think it has a positive value. I may not agree with it. I also think that within the conservative movement, uh, there are voices there which move more towards modern orthodoxy. It is a very... Uh, fluid uh, condition in which the conservative movement finds itself. In fact, I predict that within a matter of time, modern orthodoxy, the left side of it, and the right side of the right wing of conservative probably will become one and the same. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you a question about something you wrote in a chapter entitled The Expulsion of God in Halacha. And right. I, I found something which I didn't really understand, so I hope you'll bear with me while I read two quotes sure. which... I thought they somehow contradicted each other, so if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. So the first quote is this. When living our religious lives, we are more concerned about the specifics of halacha than we are about our existential relationship with God, which, of course, is what you've been telling me now uh, during this interview. 
No doubt this is partially the fault of the halachic process itself. Even the sages of the Talmud, when discussing halachic issues, rarely mention God in their conversation, making these discussions very legal and often dry in a religious sense. The reason for this is obvious. There was no need to mention God in all these debates because they were thoroughly touched by his presence. God was the magnificent background music to anything the sages felt and said. In their view, God was a challenge, not a mere notion. They realized that they were more known by God than God could ever be known by them. That's the first quote. And then in the next section you say, and now I'm quoting again, in modern times, this religious experience is lost on us. Again, as you've been telling me. We study Talmud and Halacha in ways that have been deeply affected by the secular environment in which we live. God consciousness is no longer a priority. The majority of us are no longer God intoxicated. Most, if not all, of our halachic authorities have also fallen victim to this sad situation without even being aware of it. They decide on halachic matters while God is not actively present. This does not mean that they do not believe in God or that they have no Yerat Shemaim, but it does mean that they are not stirred by his presence while dealing with halachic issues. How often is God mentioned in rabbinic responsa? It seems to me a bit, Rabbi Cardozo, that uh, with all due respect, you're assuming that what you're trying to prove. When the Talmudic sages don't mention God, you attribute it to their swimming in the sea of the divine, whereas when modern responsa don't mention God, you say it's because they lack God intoxication. Isn't that a problem in terms of attributing motives to people and we can't really be sure about what they really are thinking? True, but when I speak with many of them, as I've done, uh, modern halachic uh, authorities, I very strongly feel that this awareness of God is no longer playing the same role with them as it was in the days of the Talmud. So it's from personal experience uh, from and personal, personal experience. And uh-huh. in fact, they also agreed with me about this. They admitted that this is a problem. Really? That's very yes. interesting. Yeah. They acknowledge that God yeah. is not discussed yeah. enough yeah. or not yeah. thought about enough? Uh, not thought about enough, but even more important, not experienced enough. Because we are all deeply influenced by secularism, including myself. I have this problem myself as well. And that is, how do you hold on to this God experience, which is extremely difficult in a secular society in which we live, even including in Israel. So the Talmudic world was a very different world than the world of today. There, God was still the center, not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentile world. We are now no longer living in that kind of a period. Here, secularism has become the God of the new age. And this is what makes the difference. And you think that even in the very orthodox world, this secularism has had such an effect that even halachic responses are affected by that. Absolutely. Another thing that you say in the same context reminded me of some things that Rabbi Soloveitchik said. Of course, you take uh, exception to some of Rav Salvechik's position very respectfully, Correct. of course, in the last section of this book. Right. Rav Salvechik, in certain essays, in particular, Halachic Man, Uvi Kashtem Misham, mm-hmm. he sees the halachic framework as the foundation for a Jewish philosophy and the encounter with God, meaning that right. is the foundation from which the encounter of God leaps. Perhaps even more blatantly, in the halachic mind, Rav Salvechik argues that subjective religiosity cannot endure. We must instead use the objective manifestation of that subjectivity, in the case of Judaism halacha, and work outwards from there in order to encounter the divine. In other words, Rav Soloveitchik says that halacha must be the basis from which one develops an encounter with God. In other words, doing every jot and tittle of the law, making sure that every single detail is fulfilled from that and from within such an absolute single-minded dedication to Jewish law arises a dedication to God and the experience and encounter with God himself. It seems to be saying that you're, you say that doesn't, that's not enough. It won't really work. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I don't believe that Rav Solovaitsik, and with great amount of respect, understood the halachic 
heart and the halachic mind, which is also, by the way, very clear in his work on the halachic man, which is a very mathematical way of uh, reading what is happening with halacha. I believe that the experience of God needs to be there prior to the halacha and the halachic way of living and not the other way around because I don't believe that at least today halacha as such is able to make us aware of God unless we are searching for him and the search has to be there before the halacha actually moves in so therefore I'm saying that halacha is there to make sure that we experience God once we have been looking for him. If I just keep the halakha because the halakha says so, and I think there's a lot of evidence for that, most people don't feel after they have lived by all the halakhic criteria that now suddenly they have an encounter with God. It no longer works like that, perhaps in the past. And I think here I have a difference with Rabbi Soloveitchik. So do you think it's fair for me to say the following? I've often noticed that that seems to be the difference between Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Rabbi Heschel starts off from one level and leads to halacha, whereas Salvatic starts from halacha and leads to that divine level. Yes, I agree with Heschel on this point. Okay. What about this? If halacha is divine, which you clearly say that it is, how do we make sure, if we're going to innovate, or perhaps, um, the word take liberties is the wrong term, but to be more open with it than people have been in the past, how do we make sure that we don't actually contravene the divine will? Because God gave us that option. God, in fact, has asked us to do so. What do you mean? We are shootfim with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. There's a shootfu. There's a partnership with Him. This is not just that He is the commander and we just have to follow. No, He is asking us to become part of the development of Halacha, which is the meaning of Torah lo bashamayimi. The Torah is no longer in heaven. He gives it over to the sages and He says, "Okay, now we need to create this Torah or this Halacha together." Not just me to be the commander, but you are also being part of this very development. So the moment we are going to say that the Torah, or better the Halakha, is something which is untouchable, we are missing the point of what God is telling us about this Halakha. Now you are partner with me in creating the Halakha. And the sages of Israel in the days of the Talmud have clearly done that in the Mishnah, probably earlier than that, even more. But we have, I think, in the last hundred years, probably after the Holocaust even more, we have more or less stopped that. We are no longer creative. We are mainly repeating what the old people have said before, uh, to say it a little different. Uh, We should not be passive recipients of the halakha, but we should actually be involved in creating this kind of halakha, and we are no longer doing that. So I assume that in large part you're basing this on things like Tanur Shaldachnai, Masech and Eluv Elu Divir Elukim Chaim, terms like that. Um, a lot of people would argue that those terms are true and obviously part of the halakhic process, but they require a Sanhedrin. In other words, when there was a Sanhedrin actively making law on Harabait or in Yavna, at that point, Law could be changed in the usual legal process. Lacking a Sanhedrin, we no longer have the ability to do so. And some people might even bemoan that and say it's too bad, but we still have to wait for a Sanhedrin. Do you believe we have to wait for the Sanhedrin to return or we have to be active even without it? No, we definitely do not have to wait for the Sanhedrin. We have the responsibility today. Our rabbis have the responsibility to do this in the same way as the Sanhedrin did that a long time ago. How do they have that right? If the Sanhedrin was a body which had the legal authority to change the law or to affect the law in certain ways, how do we have the authority because to do it? Because it nowhere says that Torah lo he 
is only meant to be for the Sanhedrin. That is never stated anywhere. Isn't it true, however, that that context in which Loba Shemaimi was said was a vote of the Sanhedrin? Yes, that's definitely true, but it doesn't mean to say that therefore it is only the Sanhedrin who is able to, uh, to make use of this. Very interesting. I think, in fact, it's very dangerous to say this because since the Sanhedrin is a long time behind us, and if we don't move with this concept of Torah Loba we get stagnant completely and totally, and by that we will lose even more Jews. That's interesting because I know that you speak a lot about the non-religious, quote-unquote, secular Israelis, who in fact, you say, have tremendous religious experience even though they are not fully compliant with halacha or perhaps compliant with halacha at all. You talk about men who may not be putting on tefillin but will have a Kabbalah Shabbat service or women who light Friday night candles and then go to the beach. Correct. Do you celebrate phenomena like that? Or do you think our job is to bring them closer to halakha? No, definitely we have to bring them closer to halakha, but I don't think we should tell them unless they ask us how to do this. This has to be a natural development. And I know this also from my experience as a teacher that if you allow this to happen, and then you discuss matters with them and you make suggestions to them, but not by coercing them into anything, then it may indeed happen. I don't believe that they have enormous religious experiences, but they are searching. And we must make sure that they keep on searching because that's the best way how to get them a little closer. And on top of that, I believe also that they are already keeping many mitzvot and we should not look down on them, which is happening a lot within the Orthodox community. And you certainly have said in your writings that in some ways they're doing something which the Orthodox community is failing to do. Absolutely. We can learn a lot from them. Their search is something which you're obviously advocating on a very strong level. Absolutely. Now, what about dogma? I know that Menachem Kellner famously wrote a book entitled Must a Jew Believe Anything? Right. And he deals head on with the concept of dogma and Jewish thought. He believes that we've gotten off the correct path and that the Rambam, for all his greatness in codifying 13 principles, actually might have done a disservice to the Jewish people, adding something in which had not been part of Judaism classically. Many people obviously disagree with Professor Kellner. What's your opinion about dogma and its place in Jewish religion? I fully agree with uh, Professor Kellner. Perhaps I even go further than him. I think that dogma is a non-Jewish concept which never became part and was never part of the Jewish tradition, was indeed introduced mainly by Maimonides. Maimonides never meant it to be something final. He probably meant it only for the days in which he lived because the Jews at the time needed some kind of uh, principles to hold on to in a Christian and in a world of Islam who had their dogmas. And the Jews were asked, so what are you actually believing? And the Jew basically said, I'm not so sure what I believe because I live in according to halakha and that is plenty enough. But the beauty about it is that as long as there are no dogmas and there's a lot lot of flexibility, there's a possibility for discussion. There's a possibility of changing your mind without doing away with the great, let's say, foundations on which the Jewish tradition stands. But foundations are not dogmas. Dogmas are a very well-described, closed concepts which cannot be challenged. There is no such thing in the Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition was always open to tremendous differences of opinion. If you already look into the Kusari on one side and the Morena Vuchim of Maimonides on the other side, you see enormous differences of opinion about the very principles on which the Jewish tradition stands. But if you ask me, 
Does God exist? The answer is yes. If you ask me, what do you mean with it? I'm not so sure. If you ask me, is the Torah mina shamaim? Torah is from heaven? Yes. What do you mean by that? I'm not so sure. Why? Because if I look in the sources, I see so many different opinions. Heschel wrote in great lengths about this. And uh, this is exactly what makes this tradition so beautiful. So what kinds of things would you say are foundations? That the Torah is divine and that God exists? Are there others as well that are foundations as opposed to dogmas that Jews... I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there are any more foundations than these two, to be quite honest. Probably there is something like schar and onesh, reward and punishment. I'm not so sure about that either. But when it comes to these two principles, God exists. Also, I have no idea what I mean by that word. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, Spinoza also believed in God in his way. And there's a lot of discussion about this. And Torah mina shamayim, I've written in this book about the fact that if the Torah would have been given today, it probably would look very different from the Torah a few thousand years ago because the Torah is also an historical work put within a historical context. And that may have been different if it would have been given a thousand years later. So let me quote something that you write on that exact topic. You you said, while the sages believed that the Torah is absolutely divine, they did not believe that the text was indisputable or incontestable. They did not see it as the final text. They realized that the Torah was a stage in God's plan at a particular moment in Jewish history. The reason for this is that since revelation is a response to the human longing for a relationship with God, any revelation can be successful only to the extent that human beings can relate to it. So the divine will is limited by what human beings are able to pragmatically and spiritually understanding and accomplish. Now, that's a heady statement. I'm sure it's quite controversial. Mm -hmm. Is it really fair to attribute that to the sages? Now, obviously, as we know in Mark Shapiro's book, The Limits Mm -hmm. of Orthodox Theology, there are certainly many opinions about the text not being sacrosanct as it is now, meaning there might be, whether it's above here and there or different words that might be different, the Ibn Ezra's last 12th sukkim of the Torah, the Gemara itself talks about the last eight verses in the Torah, but... It sounds to me like there's a bit of a leap in suggesting that while the text isn't incontestable, saying that Chazal actually saw this as a stage in God's plan. That's a very different statement. Where do you see that in the works of our sages? Uh, For example, in Maimonides, when Maimonides discusses the question about the sacrifices, and he says there that sacrifices are basically a kind of giving in to human weakness at the time, Maimonides is clearly making a point there that if we would not be weak, the sacrifices or the commandments concerning the sacrifices would never have been given in the first place. And he's very clearly indicating, at least in the Morinavuchim, not in the Mishneh Torah, but in the Morinavuchim, is indicating something like, well, you know, one day these sacrifices will have to go. And he seems to be very pleased that they have gone. So this is a very good example, or take the other example, he does not discuss in the Morin of Uchim, and that is uh, people being slaves. There, were, there was a time when there were slaves. Uh, the Torah speaks about slavery and about uh, what are the conditions for slavery. Now that we are no longer, at least in the West, we don't have slavery, nobody is saying it is a mitzvah to make somebody into a slave so that we can somehow observe the laws concerning slavery. No, this was an historical moment when slaves were still needed, and what the Torah did was to humanize it as much as possible, to give the slaves a better condition, with the ultimate goal that one day it would disappear altogether. So these are two very good examples of of earlier sages. Of Cardozo, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask as a final question about your vision for halacha in the future and the state of Israel. You mentioned that the state of Israel is a big part of your, your Weltanschauung, meaning the need for changes is based largely on the fact that we have a Medina Israel nowadays. What 
would you like to see happen? What would you like Judaism to look like in 50 years if things move in the way that you're suggesting? Not an easy question to answer, but what I would like to see is that democracy on one side, after all, Israeli state is a democracy, at the same time will incorporate as much as possible Jewish law and the person who actually, and I write about this in my book as well, who has laid the foundations for that was not Maimonides, but was Rabbeinu Nisim in Spain, who already saw the need that you have to combine secular law with Jewish law to be able to run a state. And he does that in a very famous way in his Drashot, the famous Drashot of Tehran. And Rav Kuko, who is also making this point, and there are also who have been making this point, where we are able to create a combination of democracy on one side and Jewish law on the other side. This is a complicated story. Uh, Rav Herzog, one of the earlier chief rabbis, has written in great lengths about it. But I would also like to see, for example, that Shabbat is becoming much more attractive in the state of Israel. I don't like at all the opening of markets, uh, mini markets on the Shabbat in Tel Aviv, whatever it is, not only because I'm a religious Jew, but because I think it is not healthy that there's not one day where people do not go out to buy things and see their lives purely being run by how much you can buy and how much you can owe. There is a whole other idea within the Jewish tradition, and it is that you have to be much instead of to have much, to use an expression of Eric Fromm. And that is what we are missing at this moment, and I believe that the government of Israel and even the Supreme Court has an educational purpose here of making Israelis aware of it because they don't even know anymore what real life is all about. And real life is, after all, first of all, moral, spiritual life. And we don't give that enough attention in the state of Israel. Do they also have a legislative responsibility to make laws against opening the markets in Tel Aviv? I don't know if that's the best way of doing it. Also, this is always a very, very sensitive issue where where does the law and where how far should the law go? I'm not very much in favor of it. I'm afraid that the moment that there would be a law in Israel to say that we have to circumcise our children, many less people would do it. You have to create education. This is persuasion, not by coercion, by which you can achieve that goal. Arbit Cardoza, I want to thank you very much for meeting today in your office. This was really enlightening for me personally, and I'm sure for our listeners. The book, again, is called Jewish Law as Rebellion. It's a wonderful book. I have been reading it, as you've heard, and I highly recommend it. And thank you very much for speaking with me today. It was a great privilege, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. You're listening to The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. Please share this podcast, and remember to rate and review us on iTunes.